This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 355th episode, we've got a bunch of news, including two brand new theropods. Nice. We're each doing one of them. Mm -hmm. And we have dinosaur of the day, a rhinoceratops. But before we get into all of that, we want to thank some of our patrons. And this week we have a new patron we'd like to thank, and that is Eric. So thank you very much, Eric, for joining our Patreon community. And then rounding out our shout outs, we've got the Georges family. Ellen, Rhinosaurus, Gabe, Jurassic Jim, Anne, Neilovenator, Vincentrosaurus, and Bruce. Awesome. Thank you so much for supporting us and being a part of our community. And if you haven't already seen, we're doing our YouTube live stream because we reached that Patreon goal of 200 patrons. And so join us on YouTube on September 25th. Yep, that's a Saturday. And for our patrons, you get first dibs on asking us questions. Yeah, we've already got quite a few in the Discord server. So if you want to add yours, head over and ask us whatever you want about the show or about how we got started or dinosaurs or whatever you want to know. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. So if you want to join our growing community and... Make sure your question gets answered, then go to our Patreon, patreon.com slash Dino. And now jumping into the news. Ooh, I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a new dinosaur. The paper is called New Theropod Dinosaur from the Late Cretaceous of Brazil Improves Abelosaur Diversity, and that's by Fabiano Iori and others, published in Journal of South American Earth Sciences. So yeah, we've got a new abelosaurid. Everyone loves a good abelosaurid. Yeah. Is it a little one or a big one? A medium-sized one. Okay, I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> I like the really tiny ones and the really big ones. The medium-sized ones are like... They're okay. They're all right. Yeah. Well, this one's name is Karupi etata. It's the first theropod from Sao Paulo State and the first formal dinosaur from the Marilia Formation in Sao Paulo State. I thought we talked about dinosaurs from Sao Paulo before, but maybe they weren't their own... Unique genus. First theropod. This one's the first theropod. Oh, gotcha. Mm-hmm. So Karupi lived in the late Cretaceous, and it helps show more abelosauroid diversity in western Gondwana. A lot of titanosaurs have been found in the area. Maybe that's what you're thinking of, Garrett. Mm-hmm. Up to 10 species. I mean, they're the most memorable, so. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, you know, not many theropods and no ornithischians, at least so far. The theropods that had been found were mostly included isolated and fragmentary teeth and bones. So that's why this is the first formal dinosaur name. In the paleo art by Julia Dolivera, 
it shows the dinosaur in a desert environment. And you can see it's got the large head, short arms, long tail, robust body. It did live in a desert environment. As I mentioned, it's medium-sized. It's about 16 and a half feet or 5 meters long. And the name, I'm just going to quote from the paper. Quote, Karupi refers to a legendary monster of the Guarani indigenous culture, god of fertility and sexuality. The choice of the name is due to the fact that the fossils were found in the region of Motel Paraiso, Paradise Motel, a place intended for intimate encounters, end quote. <laughs> this is a pretty entertaining backstory for a dinosaur name, the Paradise Motel. Yes. So Karupi is one of seven monstrous children, and Karupi is known for having a prehensile male appendage. We'll keep it to that. The species name, I'll also take this from the paper, quote, Etaata comes from the indigenous language Tupi and has two roots, Eta for rock and Ata for hard, in allusion to the very cemented rocks of the Marilia Formation at the Monte Alto region, end quote. Hard rocks at the Paradise Motel. Yep. Interesting. <laughs> so they first found fossils of Karupi in 2002. They found an incomplete pelvis. And then later excavations found three caudal vertebrae and quote-unquote other undefined bones. And this paper describes the vertebrae and those vertebrae was enough with the pelvis to name the dinosaur. So the pelvic girdle, which was found in 2002, was described in 2014 by Mendez and others. And it wasn't named then as a dinosaur, but they knew it was from an abelosauroid based on the fusion of pelvic elements. And they said it could possibly be an abelosaurid based on its size, but at the time there were no unique characteristics to identify it by, so they couldn't name a particular genus or species. So what changed? The caudal vertebrae. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. But at the time, back in 2014, they also said it could be a noosaurid based on the size, and they're closely related to abelosaurids. And they also said this is the first time that abelosauroid bones had been reported from the area, and that there were traits related to muscle insertion in the pelvic girdle, and together with the caudal vertebrae that they described this year and used to name the dinosaur, that means Karupi probably had a robust body. And it also means Karupi was an abelosaurid because of the caudal vertebrae and because the pelvis is more robust than noosaurids. So it was stockier than some of the other contemporaries. Yep. And those vertebrae were the key. There's fused bones, so they know it was a mature individual. And there's a lot of unique characters in the caudal vertebrae, especially in the first caudal vertebra. And one of those characters is it has a notch. And the way that first caudal vertebra is built probably means that Karupi had a rigid tail. And that would help it run quickly. The authors also said being robust would have helped Karupi look for prey and water over a large area. So it lived in an arid environment. There was very little rainfall. Between 12 to 8 inches or 300 to 200 millimeters of rain each year. It's about like Southern California. Oh, it's that low. <laughs> yeah. It's a little deserty. I always forget. <laughs> but mollusks, fish, and crocodiliforms were found in the area, so there were bodies of water. When they're looking at the taphonomy, the authors suggested that the holotype died near where it was buried, and it was buried shortly after dying. Some of its bones were moved a short distance and then buried on a, quote, poorly drained floodplain. 
There's some desiccation marks, it's removal of moisture, and some disarticulation, so the fossils were probably out in the air for a short time before being buried. So there are no wear marks, so the bones probably didn't travel far from where the animal died to where it was buried. The pelvic girdle is considered to be low transportable, and the vertebrae are considered to be high transportable, but having both nearby, plus no heavy fossils like an articulated skull and jaw, helps to show this, quote, short distance transportation. Yeah, that is interesting that it's, you've got one of the heavier bones and some of the lighter bones and none of the (laughs) in-between. Yeah. So phylogenetically, we only know enough so far to know it's an abelosaurid. The holotype's just a little too incomplete. The fossils now are housed at the Paleontological Museum, Professor Antonio Celso de Arruda Campos. The Arruda Campos sounds familiar. The rest of it doesn't, probably because they don't have a ton of dinosaur discoveries. Mm. Or maybe it's because they're all titanosaurs. Or maybe that's why it does sound familiar. (laughs) Could be. (laughs) Well, hopefully they find more, so we at least know what its head or hands or feet or legs looked like. And it seems likely, just a few years ago, all we knew was the pelvis. It's true. So the other new dinosaur that we have is more exciting. What? At least it got picked up in new, more news stories because it has a connection to Tyrannosaurus. Oh, yeah. There were a lot of headlines. <laughs> it's so funny how it's like any dinosaur that's found that is a Tyrannosaur or a Tyrannosauroid gets all these T-Rex headlines. And then even ones where it's like they're in the same ecosystem as a Tyrannosaur get lumped in and get a lot of excitement. <laughs> so really, a Tyrannosaur being in your in your fauna is good for your career if you're a paleontologist. Mm. So this one is a new allosauroid from Uzbekistan, and the paper is a new Carcharodontosaurian theropod dinosaur occupies apex predator niche in the early late Cretaceous of Uzbekistan. Anything that's an apex predator, too, I think there's more excitement around. Yep, they squeeze that into the title, maybe to make it more exciting. (laughs) The paper was written by Kohei Tanaka and others and published in the Royal Society of Open Science, which means you can read it, it's open access. So obviously, as a Carcharodontosaur, it is not a Tyrannosaur. But Carcharodontosaurids are the last surviving group within Allosauroidea. And a lot of people like Allosauroids. They're mm-hmm. pretty cool. They're one of the main other groups, basically, Tyrannosauroids. And Allosauroids dominated about 80 million years worth of predator type in dinosaur <laughs> in the Mesozoic. That's a good chunk of time. Yeah. This new Carcharodontosaur was found in the Besecti Formation, which has been coming up more and more. Mm-hmm. That makes it about 90 to 92 million years old. And that area includes Jara Titanus, which is a diplodocoid, but not a titanosaur. Still a sauropod. Yeah, we that one was just described this year as well. And Timurlengia, which is an early tyrannosauroid, but not a true tyrannosaurid, because 90 million years ago, I don't think we had any true tyrannosaurids yet. I think they were all still in tyrannosauroid territory. Is that how this new dinosaur became the apex predator? Pretty much, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Because Timurlengia is closer in size to a Deinonychus than it is to a T-Rex, although that size estimate for Timurlengia might be based on some juveniles. Mm. So it might have been a little bit bigger, but in the paper where they described it, they did have a bone from an adult and they didn't mention anything about how the bone was much bigger or anything. So I'm just sort of extrapolating that they don't think there was a huge difference because they still gave their size estimates. So yeah, it's definitely still much, much smaller 
than this new Carcharodont store. So there's a little backstory because everybody's interested in the T-Rex versus other predator story. Tyrannosauroids spent tens of millions of years as smaller non-apex mesopredators in their ecosystems. The Tyrannosauroid Guanlong in the late Jurassic was much smaller than the Allosauroid Sinraptor, which it coexisted with, as well as the Tyrannosauroid Eotyrannus in the early Cretaceous of Europe was much smaller than the Allosauroid Neovenador and Spinosaurid Baryonyx, which were all on the Isle of Wight, also mm-hmm. known as Dinosaur Isle together. This new dinosaur is Ulubesaurus, Uzbekistanensis, and Ulubesaurus is after the, quote, Timurid Sultan Ulu Bey in recognition of his early scientific contributions as a 15th century astronomer and mathematician in Central Asia region, parentheses, now Uzbekistan, end quote. That's pretty cool. Yeah, he clearly achieved a lot if 600 years later, people are remembering him from his accomplishments. And I saw on the dinosaur mailing list, someone wrote that he is also, quote, grandson of Timur, a.k.a. Timur Lung, the source of the name of the sympatric Tyrannosaurus Timurlengia, end quote. Interesting. When I was digging, I thought that Timurlengia was named after the Timurid Empire, and that was the origin of the Tyrannosauroid name. But I guess if the empire is named after the guy and then a dinosaur is named 600 years later, whether it's named after the empire or it's named after the guy who founded the empire. It's kind of similar yeah. overlaps there. Yeah, yeah. that Timurid empire is really interesting. It was huge. It was like Turkey all the way up through Uzbekistan, basically all around the east end of that Caspian Sea. Cool. But I guess... Uzbekistan must have been a major part in it if the things from Uzbekistan are getting named after it. Mm-hmm. So the holotype of Ulubesaurus is basically just a partial left maxilla or part of the upper jaw. And then, you know, like the tooth sockets in the bottom of the upper jaw. It doesn't reach all the way to the top because it is a pretty small piece. It's amazing how much you can figure out about a dinosaur based on part of a jaw. Yeah, and it does not look like it's in good shape. It looks like just a triangular piece of rock with some holes in it Mm. that's like really irregularly shaped. Like the surface is very worn down. But they did manage to get a ton of details from it, including like different angles where it articulates with other bones in the skull. And there's like a ridge in it that makes it look like it's in a specific group, which is how they figured out that it's an allosauroid. And being an allosauroid, that makes it a carcharodontosaur basically because that's the only group that was around at the time. But I think there were a couple features, too, that made it Carcharodontosaur specific, like the ratio of the tooth roots. Mm, so some really specific characters. Yes. They managed to get out of this nondescript looking block. Cool. But they did also refer another piece of a left maxilla and a piece of a right maxilla, which used to be referred to a dromaeosaurid. So there's three bones, I guess, or three very partial bones. Well, that helps. The more bones, the merrier. Yes. The holotype was actually found back in the 1980s. I was kind of excited when I saw this discovery because I was like, oh, that means there are people doing a bunch of digging in the area. But I'm, I'm still not sure if people are actively excavating in Uzbekistan and Tajikistan and some of those other areas around here. But this bone was found back in the 1980s by a colleague of Lev Alexandrovich Nesov, which I'm pretty sure is the same Nesov that wrote the book on paleontology from the area in the 1990s. 
The holotype sat in a collection for about 40 years before it was rediscovered. That happens. Yeah. <laughs> I think it said that somebody noticed it again in about 2019. So it got published very shortly after that. Yeah. In terms of publishing timelines, typical publishing timelines. Well, it probably took a while to prepare too. I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm not sure if it was already prepared or not. Oh, yeah. There were some teeth and other fragments from presumed Carcharodontosaurids that had been found in the area. So people were on the lookout for a more complete Carcharodontosaurid find for a while because we figured they were in the fauna. We have the teeth and other little bits, but it wasn't enough to name a dinosaur. So it was just like, we think Timurlengia wasn't the apex predator because we find these bones that look like a big Carcharodontosaur, but we're not really sure. And this sort of helped us get a more complete picture of that. So the holotype of Ulubesaurus is 24.2 centimeters long and 13.1 centimeters tall, or about nine and a half by 5.2 inches. <laughs> so not particularly big, although it's not tiny. It's right. like, you know, you'd need two hands, I guess, to hold it, potentially. It includes eight, quote unquote, sub-rectangular tooth sockets. Oh, sub-rectangular. Yeah, it's interesting. I think by that, they mean like rounded a little bit. Mm-hmm. One socket has an unerupted tooth in it preserved as well, although there weren't any fancy pictures of CT scans, so that might come in a more in another paper later. Mm -hmm. The sockets are relatively narrow compared with Timurlengia, which was interesting to me because I know that Tyrannosaurids have those big, you know, banana-shaped yeah. teeth that are always described as like very wide, very almost round compared to most other dinosaurs that have more knife-like teeth, mm -hmm. at least when they're predators. But even Timurlengia, which was... 90 million years ago, so like over 20 million years before T-Rex and true Tyrannosaurids, a lot of the true Tyrannosaurids still already had these like much bulkier teeth. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. They're just biding their time. Yeah. <laughs> and Ulubesaurus also has a number of features in common with different allosauroids. And when comparing the maxilla specifically, they were able to come up with a ratio of that sort of maxilla size mm -hmm. to overall body size. And they gave a pretty specific body size estimate for this less than a foot long chunk of maxilla. They said that this Ulubesaurus was about seven and a half to eight meters or 25 to 26 feet long. Mm. And they estimate that it weighed over a ton. So they were a little more loosey-goosey on the weight estimate, right. fortunately, because trying to do a weight estimate from a partial maxilla is really, really speculative. Mm -hmm. I like that, that they can give a rough estimate of the size. Yeah, it's nice. I mean, I always want to give a rough estimate, even if it's very rough. You know, if it had to be like five to 10 meters, that's still better than nothing mm -hmm. to give you an idea of what it looked like. But the fact that they went through the effort of trying to really nail down just how big it is is nice. I think seven and a half to eight meters or 25 feet-ish doesn't sound that big, but it is the largest known predator, also known as the apex predator in most cases, mm -hmm. of its ecosystem. And it's bigger than Karupi was, and that one was considered mid-sized. Yep. I think this one is probably still considered mid-sized just because we've got Carcharodontosaurus, which is way, way longer, like almost twice as long. Mm -hmm. So it, you probably couldn't consider this one a large <laughs> Carcharodontosaur. Large for its ecosystem. Yes. Because all the known Tyrannosauroids and Dromaeosaurids from the area would have been much smaller and therefore relegated to being mesopredators and not apex predators. I keep bringing that up because my fun fact is about mesopredators. Oh, okay. <laughs> Ulubesaurus is the first Carcharodontosaur known from late Cretaceous Central Asia. 
if you wanted to know the superlative, because every dinosaur needs a superlative. It has mm. to be the first of something or the biggest or the oldest or something. Like Brontosaurus, the best dinosaur. That is not its preferred superlative. <laughs> <laughs> but another superlative that you could use is the Bisecti formation is now the latest known formation with a Tyrannosauroid and Carcharodontosaurid living together. Although it only beat the previous record by about 5 million years, which in geological time is not that impressive. The previous record was the Mustn't Touch It member of the Cedar Mountain Formation. I love Mustn't Touch It. <laughs> it's one of my favorite titles. One of my favorite formation names or uh, member names. Yeah, it's a pretty good one. The Mustn't Touch It member includes the Tyrannosauroid Morose and the Carcharodontosaurid Siats. And just for the record, the Carcharodontosaurid was way bigger than the Tyrannosauroid there as well. It wasn't their time to shine yet. It was not, no. Allosauroids dominated a lot of ecosystems in the late Jurassic and early Cretaceous. Ulubesaurus and Timurlingia is actually the fifth known set, including an Allosauroid, a much larger Allosauroid, and a smaller Tyrannosauroid. So I already mentioned four. Other than Ulubesaurus and Timurlingia, there's Sinraptor and Guanlong, there's Neovenador and Eotyrannus, and Siats with Morose. But the last one actually has two Allosauroids and two Tyrannosauroids. Mm. It's Allosaurus and Saurophaganax with Tanicolagrius and Stoxosaurus. I feel like you can make a f fun story about like best of friends, <laughs> the large Allosauroid with the small Tyrannosauroid. <laughs> but they wouldn't have been friends. Oh, that's true. The best of enemies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the rivalry that lasted tens of millions of years all over the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Tyrannosauroids basically stayed small until Allosauroids disappeared. And this is one more piece. So we now have five or six, if you want to include both from the Morrison oh. Formation, that all match that pattern. And we still don't know why that happened, but it might be that Allosauroids were dominating and it took an environmental change or a change with their food in order to upset that balance and bring the Tyrannosauroids up. Mm -hmm. But Allosauroids basically disappeared when Tyrannosauroids took over. So they ultimately won. Yeah, but they had a short reign because they were only around about 20 million years on top before the Cretaceous extinction. Oh, yeah. Then I guess it's kind of a toss-up if you're looking at it by <laughs> length of time. Or last man standing, mm -hmm. last dino standing. Unfortunately, we can't tell the closest relatives of Ulubesaurus because, again, we have a very partial maxilla and a couple other fragments to work from. Hashtag need more fossils. Yeah. They did try to do a phylogeny. I don't even think it's worth mentioning what the results were because it's just like a big mess. But if we do find more fossils, we might be able to learn if they came from Europe or East Asia, since those are the most likely places for it to come from. I guess maybe it could come from Africa yeah. or South America if it went on quite a crazy journey. We've seen Stranger Things. A lot of dinosaurs went on lengthy journeys. Yep. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. 
Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Next in the news, there were three types of dinosaur footprints recently found in Rajasthan, India. They're found in the Tar Desert. And these footprints, they're about 200 million years old. They found two Eubrontes species and one Gralator species. And these are all theropod species. They got three toes. I guess they were all existing Eubrontes species? Yeah, there's Eubrontes giganteus and Eubrontes glenrosensis. I guess where glenrosensis was found. Yeah. The glenrose quarry. Yeah, that's a good point. And then the Grolator is Grolator tenuous. I don't know that one. Eubrontes gets all the press. Yeah, that one does sound more familiar to me. So both Eubrontes tracks have, they're about 14 inches or 35 centimeter footprints. And the Grolator footprint's about two inches or five and a half centimeters. And that one had very narrow toes and long claws. Oh, those are totally different animals then. Or maybe a very young animal. It's really hard to tell from just footprints. It's estimated that the dinosaur that made the Eubrontes tracks were between 39 to 49 feet or 12 to 15 meters long and weighed 1,100 to 1,500 pounds or 500 to 700 kilograms. And it's estimated that the Gralator tracks belong to a dinosaur that was 6.5 to 10 feet or 2 to 3 meters long. These dinosaurs, they lived in a semi-arid environment And they're saying it's likely that they're going to find more evidence of dinosaurs in the area. Maybe we'll find some bones. Some bones next to some tracks and then you can figure out (laughs) (laughs) what exactly made the tracks. A dinosaur fossilized in its own trackway. Oh yeah, that'd be great. That'd be convenient. Be very thoughtful of that dinosaur. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. In Canada, Denny the dinosaur has been fully restored. We've talked about Denny before, probably while it was getting restored. It's that brontosaurus statue at the Calgary Zoo in Alberta. I still always think I should pronounce it Diny the dinosaur, but it definitely looks like Dinny. Yeah. Well, 
Denny's been there for 84 years and weighs about 120 tons. And part of the restoration was getting the neck and left rear leg repaired. Yeah, I remember that the weight is just the thing that stands out to me. Mm-hmm. But it's like solid concrete, if I remember right. Which yeah, seems like it would be really difficult to repair something that heavy. I think at that point, it's like you're patching stucco on a house sort of <laughs> thing, more than like repairing a sculpture like you would imagine a modern sculpture where you'd like take it somewhere and remove the part and like rebuild the armature. You're not going to do that kind of thing with a 120 ton sculpture. Mm. But I'm glad it's all repaired. Ready for another 84 years. Yeah. Maybe less depending on how easy or difficult it was to repair it this time. Yeah. Keep it painted. Don't let any <laughs> of the cracks grow. <laughs> In Holyoke, Massachusetts, there were two men charged with archaeological violations, vandalism, and trespassing because they're caught with tools and slabs of rock at the Dinosaur Footprints attraction. Those footprints were found there in 1802. There's more than 800 tracks in sandstone slabs, more than 20 trackways. They include Ubrontes prints. You're right. They're everywhere. I think they're like the national fossil of Massachusetts or maybe Connecticut or maybe both. But yeah, we've heard about that a few times in the past. People trying to steal tracks from these trackways. Stop it. Stop it, people. I'm glad they keep catching the criminals. Yeah, uh, these two men, they said they didn't think they were digging on the dinosaur reservation area, but they were, so there's an investigation happening now. What I mean, why else would they be digging? Don't go places, you just go to a random area and start <laughs> digging out chunks of rock? Like, What kind of an excuse is that? I don't know the details, but I didn't realize that that reservation was so big. It's an eight-acre wilderness reservation. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, 800 tracks, they take up some space. That's true. And the fact that we've known about them for so long is also cool. Yeah, 1802. That's way before we knew what a dinosaur was. Mm-hmm. They just thought they were giant bird footprints or something, I guess. Something giant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they found another fun list of dinosaur sites to visit. They didn't mention Hollyoke, Massachusetts. At least I don't think they did. But there's a lot of sites you can add to this list. Some of them we visited. There's the Australian Age of Dinosaurs, Crystal Palace Dinosaurs, Natural History Museum in London. American Museum of Natural History. And then in general, they also mention as part of the list, uh, Drumheller in Alberta and the U.S. states, Colorado and Utah. What? <laughs> that seemed pretty vague. You're pretty That's general. A yeah. very strange list. <laughs> but there were some places on the list that I know we want to visit. The Field Museum in Chicago, the National Museum of Natural History in Paris, Cretaceous Park in Bolivia, that's the one with the wall of footprints. Oh, yeah, that's that's one of the coolest ones. Yeah. Also, the Isle of Skye in Scotland. There's a lot of places we still want to go. And then there's one I hadn't heard of. It's in California. It's Galetta Meadows Estate. It's in San Diego County. And they've got 130 metal sculptures. I think mostly dinosaurs, but also mammoths and saber-toothed tigers. And their their main picture shows a Spinosaurus. That's cool. I was really hoping that it was a trackway because it sounds like the list leans pretty heavily towards trackways around the world. Mm. And I was like, oh, there's dinosaur tracks, 130 di- no, uh, 130 no. metal sculptures. Oh, I thought the list leaned more towards museums. Well, you mentioned the Bolivian. Oh, the park, Cretaceous Park, yeah. Yeah, that doesn't get brought up that often. That's true. Yeah, we could take a road trip maybe. Yeah, to Bolivia. That sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking we start off with this Galena Meadows estate. <laughs> oh, I see. San Diego is easier to get to. Yeah. We could stop on the way. Okay. 10% of the way. <laughs> that would be fun. Our last bit of news. 
Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaurs back. That comic wrapped up in 2019, and now there's an animated series coming out on Disney next February 2022. It's pretty soon. Yeah, there's not too much to say about it yet, but it does sound exciting. Something to look forward to. Yeah, the more dinosaurs, the better. Mm-hmm. Before we get into our dinosaur of the day, just want to do a quick thank you and review, I guess. Uh, one of our listeners, Richard, sent us Explorers of the Lost Valley, which is a really fun... Card game? I think you'd call it card. There's dice involved, too. Yeah. But it's mostly, mostly cards. cards. There's yeah. no board. Right. <laughs> There's, it features two out of three of the Crystal Palace dinosaurs. You got Iguanodon and Megalosaurus. Yeah, of course, there's no Hylaeosaurus because everybody, everybody forgets, forgets about a Hylaeosaurus. It's true. That's okay. We don't forget. <laughs> Even when you go to the Crystal Palace, they've got the Hylaeosaurus head, the original one, just like off to the side that you can go mess with. Yeah. Like you're allowed to touch it. The rest of it's off on an island so no one can get near it. Yeah. They did reconstruct the head and you can't touch the reconstructed head. That's true. I see what you mean. Yeah, it's a pretty fun game. It doesn't take that long. We played it with four people. There's two modes, kind of beginner and advanced. We didn't try the advanced mode. Oh, we didn't? Mm-mm. Yeah, the beginner mode was basically you are recreating more or less the original Lost World, where you're like off to an island to capture these animals, but really you end up just killing them, I guess, as trophies. Oh, you do roll the dice to hunt them, yes. Or get eaten. <laughs> right, right. So the cards dictate what you do. A large part of the game is hunting the dinosaurs, which means rolling the dice. And then if you run out of ammo, you're in trouble. Yep. <laughs> but it's pretty fun. It, it seems very simple, but it's actually, there's a, a bit of strategy to it. So it's pretty enjoyable. Yeah. We'll have to try the advanced version one of these days. Yeah. So thank you, Richard, for sending us that game. It's a lot of fun. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, a rhinoceratops, which was a request from Tyrant King via our Patreon and Discord. So thanks. A rhinoceratops was a chasmosaurine ceratopsian that lived in the late Cretaceous in what is now Alberta, Canada. It was found in the Horseshoe Canyon Formation. It probably looked a lot like Triceratops, but a different frill. Also, it was smaller. Based on the skull, it's estimated to be about 15 feet, four and a half meters long, and weigh 2,900 pounds, or 1.3 tons. A rhinoceratops had a broad, square neck frill with two fenestrae, the openings, and it had deep grooves along the neck frill. The sides of the frill had about nine ossifications. The left squamosal on the frill side had an opening from a pathology, maybe from a wound. Oof. Yeah, this is on the holotype. There's some scalloping, too, around the frill. So that's what I mean. It's a little bit different from a triceratops frill. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they have pretty smooth frills. Mm-hmm. A rhinoceratops had long brow horns and a short, blunt nose horn. Similar to triceratops. Yeah. At the horns, though, they turn outward a little bit. Hmm. The snout was short and high, and, uh, of course, it had dental batteries. It probably ate ferns, cycads, and conifers. It's good to have a lot of teeth when you're doing those hard foods. Mm -hmm. A rhinoceratops was described in 1925 by William Parks. The holotype's a partially crushed, somewhat distorted skull without the lower jaws. It was found along the Red Deer River on Neal's ranch site during a 1923 expedition from the University of Toronto. The type species is a rhinoceratops brachiops, and the genus name means 
no nose horn face. And <laughs> no <the> nose. <laughs> yeah, there was a mix up when it was first described. And the species name means short faced. I should have known that that's what it meant because like rhino obviously means nose, like rhinoplasty or rhinoceros, mm -hmm. but a rhino, so that's no nose. That's pretty clever. <laughs> so only the skull is known. And Parks in 1925 wrote, quote, the nasal horn core is apparently absent, but the nasal bone is sharp above and somewhat rugose, suggesting that it may have carried a horny sheath, end quote. He also said that the nasal bone rose abruptly, but there was no trace of a horn core and that there was no sign on the surface of the bone that the structure had been lost. So it was too smooth. You know, there were no missing fossils there. Interesting. So he thought that there was a horn, but that it existed without a horn core. Yep. And that's why he gave it the name No-Nose Horn Face. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like No-Nose Horn Face. Yeah. Or No-Nose Horn Tops. <laughs> but then later studies of a rhinoceratops found that Parks had made some mistakes in his original description. So in 1933, Richard Swanlull wrote a revision of Ceratopsia and said that there was more evidence of a nasal horn on a rhinoceratops than in the type specimen of Triceratops obtusus. And you can see Triceratops obtusus at the Smithsonian because that's Hatcher. So basically, if you consider this no nose, yeah. then Triceratops doesn't even count as having a nose. <laughs> or it means it definitely had a nose. <laughs> 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 yeah, that might be the simpler explanation. Yeah. Lowell also said that it was strange that a rhinoceratops was so rare when hundreds of triceratops have been found. That's pretty strange. Mm -hmm. More fossils in Utah were found in the 1930s that were posthumously named a rhinoceratops, question mark, <laughs> Utah and Sis, in 1946 by Charles Whitney Gilmore. So they picked a new species name for it. Yeah, Gilmore wasn't sure if it was a rhinoceratops because at the time there were fossils from up to 11 individuals of an undescribed ceratopsian and they were all fragmentary, so it was really hard to tell what they should be assigned to. Mm. And then Gilmore actually died the year before that was published, so a colleague probably finished his paper. In 1976, Douglas Lawson reclassified a rhinoceratops utahensis as Taurosaurus utahensis. And he said it was different from the other species, Taurosaurus latus, because Taurosaurus latus had a proportionally shorter squamosal bone. In 2011, Helen Tyson said only the type specimen could be considered for sure to be a rhinoceratops brachiops. And also said that, yes, a rhinoceratops did have a nasal core. And that Taurosaurus is the closest relative of a rhinoceratops. So... I didn't realize until I was doing this research that a rhinoceratops kind of mixed up in the Taurosaurus triceratops debate a little bit. It is, yeah, because <laughs> if it's the closest relative, it could get lumped in along with Taurosaurus and you could have an uber triceratops genus. <laughs> well, I don't know if it would get lumped in. It just depends, yeah, on yeah. how similar it is. So in 2014, more rhinoceratops fossils were found. It took them two years to excavate. They found babies and adults. So it's possible a rhinoceratops traveled in herds or families. They found a bone bed with five specimens. And before that, a rhinoceratops had only been known from two skulls. So, Yeah, that's really good. It's, yeah, that is good. It's also nice to hear that they found five more specimens of something and thought that looks like a rhinoceratops and not something else. So mm -hmm. that it's getting a little more material to work with. Yeah. 
Yeah, those fossils were found in 2010 by Frank Hadfield, who has been described as a dinosaur enthusiast, and he noticed the lower jaws and a horn core. I keep going back to those horn cores. <laughs> It'd be funny if the first horn core you saw was the nasal horn core. <laughs> <laughs> there are over 3,000 pounds of fossils. They had to use helicopters to airlift some out. Nice. And then they prepared them at the Royal Tyrrell Museum. It's not clear how this group died. Could have been from a flood. The find included skull bones, parts of the arms, and hip bones. So in 2014, Jordan Mallon and others published on the new information about a rhinoceratops, and they described a second specimen with a relatively complete skull, vertebrae, and partial left forelimb, and it had a triangular nasal horn core. And then in 2015, Jordan Mallon and others published on the skull ontogeny of a rhinoceratops. So that means that Lull back in 1933 was right that... It was strange that not many rhinoceratops have been found when so many triceratops have been found. Yes. So in 2015, they described the partial skull of a juvenile chasmosaurine attributed to a rhinoceratops, and then they looked at the more mature specimens to understand the ontogeny, its growth. And they found that as a rhinoceratops matured, the horn cores got longer and shifted more to a forward inclination, and the frill epiossifications became lower and fused to the underlying frill, and the face got longer. That's basically what people say happens with Triceratops in Totorosaurus, mm. for those that support them being the same genus. But we also just see it with Triceratops, even if you don't have the Torosaurus piece. Yeah. I mean, these, these changes all make sense to me. They also found that the scalloping around the frill margins got smaller as it aged. Uh, this was a pretty fun thing I found. In 2013, Canada's Museum of Nature in Ottawa had a dino idol contest where visitors to the museum voted between five dinosaurs whose fossils were still in jackets, and the winner got to be prepared. <laughs> <laughs> Did they know what they were? Or was it just like five big chunks of plaster? They had, <laughs> yeah, they knew, they knew. So the five options, they all had nicknames. There was Hedrosaur, which is the skull of a hadrosaur, Mystery Jaw, which was the jaw of a carnivore-like Gorgosaurus or Displetosaurus. So I guess they mostly knew. Stumpy, that was the skull of a ceratopsid that might have been a rhinoceratops. <laughs> Regal Ed, which was a partial skeleton of an Montosaurus, whose head had already been prepared, so they definitely knew that one. And Canadian Club, which was the back half of an ankylosaur. Oh, I know which one I would vote for. Well, you would have helped it win. Ooh. It's Canadian Club won. And that one, that ankylosaur had been wrapped up for 100 years. Actually, all the contestants had been collected in the 1910s and 1920s by Charles Sternberg and his three sons. Oh, awesome. I guess I'll have to wait for another time to learn about more about Canadian Club, since this isn't a dinosaur of the day about ankylosaurs. Yeah. Well, I don't even know what kind of ankylosaur it was, since, yeah, I was focused on Stumpy. <laughs> I was rooting for Stumpy. <laughs> <laughs> Too bad, Stumpy. You have to wait another hundred years for the next contest. Yeah. So Rhinoceratops lived a few million years before Triceratops, and other dinosaurs that lived around the same time and place included Anchiceratops, Albertosaurus, Hippacrosaurus, Saurolophus, Parkosaurus, Ornithomimus, and Struthiomimus. Yeah, that Horseshoe Canyon formation is pretty epic. I think most formations in Canada are pretty epic. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And before we get into our fun fact of the day, I've got a quiz for Sabrina. All right, bring it on. <laughs> so I'm going to give you seven animals in an ecosystem and you got to pick out which ones are the mesopredators. And mesopredators are just not the apex predators, but they're any kind of predator. I'm not going to give you the definition because that's half the fun. Oh, okay. So there's a cat, a coyote, a dragonfly, a lizard, a rat, a spider, and a wolf. I did those in alphabetical order. You can look at the list too if you want. Oh, okay. And there are multiple mesopredators, presumably. Maybe. Maybe. Somewhere between zero and seven. Hmm. Do I know what kind of cat? Like a house cat. Okay. Feral cat. Okay. I think the apex predator would be the coyote, which makes me think the rest of them are mesopredators. You're so close. The apex predator is the wolf. Oh, I missed the wolf for some reason. I was looking at the other. Oh, no. Well, it's interesting that you missed the wolf because the original thing I pulled this from didn't have a wolf. Mm -hmm. And then I added a wolf because I wanted to make a more obvious apex predator because I wasn't sure with cat and coyote if you'd be able to determine. Well, I figured coyotes are in packs and compared to a house cat, a coyote pack would do better. Yep, you're right. But I don't know why I totally forgot about the wolf. <laughs> well, wolves wolves are not a lot around in our ecosystem very much these days. Yeah. That's probably why. But yeah, so there isn't really a right answer. And I didn't want to give you a definition because the definition is sort of up for debate. Mm -hmm. Some people classify it the way you did, which is everything that isn't an apex predator. Mm -hmm. And that's the definition that I like the best after doing a little bit of research on it. But sometimes what people do is they'll try to qualify it as like in the middle so when you do the trophic level, so basically level one is a plant and then level two in this, this one actually doesn't have any level two animals, maybe a rat. I don't know if they ever eat plants, but basically level two, a lot of times the example is a bunny because it's like it only eats the plants. Mm -hmm. And then level three is the thing that eats the bunny. And then level four is the thing that eats the thing that eats the bunny and so on and so forth. So theoretically in this ecosystem, you could have it where the lowest one is the dragonfly, which gets eaten by the spider, which gets eaten by the lizard, which gets eaten by the rat, which gets eaten by the cat, which gets eaten by the coyote, which gets eaten by the wolf. This sounds like the uh, woman who swallowed a fly. Yes, it's very much like that. <laughs> but usually when you're doing these trophic level things, if you actually figure out how many things that animal ate and what those animals usually eat, it only goes up to like three or four. It's mm -hmm. usually as high as the trophic levels get. 
they go a little bit higher in the ocean. A lot of times they go up to five or six because like most fish eat other fish. Mm -hmm. So you can get a little higher of a trophic level. And then the highest things are usually like a mammal that eats the top of the food chain from the ocean. Because you can sneak one more level up Mm. by switching ecosystems partially that way. So like a polar bear eating a really big fish or like a small whale or something gets to like one up everything else. What if a polar bear ate a beached whale, but then a polar bear fell into the water and a whale ate it? Yeah, that could happen. (laughs) But it's weird because I think the way they do it is like based on the normal circumstance, like what the average one does. Because, yeah, it's like we could have this whole chain and then they the wolf would be like trophic level seven or eight. Mm-hmm. But usually... Sounds like a game. They really leveled up. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> and I think that's what everybody wants to be the apex predator too. You know, like everyone wants to know what the apex predator is. What's the thing that eats all the other things? Mm-hmm. It does sound more exciting that way. But yeah, some people then... The reason I explain that is because some people will say like, well, to be a mesopredator, you got to be at least a three or something, but not an apex or maybe I have to be at least a two and a half on average. In other words, one and a half away from the plant eater in order to count as a mesopredator. But it's kind of a, I think, silly way to do it because it's really arbitrary and depending on the ecosystem. So like in this ecosystem, the wolf is the apex predator. Mm -hmm. But in most ecosystems around like suburbs, the coyote would be the apex predator because there isn't a wolf. Mm -hmm. And then if you got rid of the coyotes, then the cat is the apex predator. It just depends on the ecosystem. in a suburban ecosystem, wouldn't the humans be the apex predator? Yeah, there's a whole thing about humans. (laughs) Humans are a highly debated thing on whether or not they count as an apex predator. It's very interesting because humans are the weirdest animals. Mm -hmm. We sure are. (laughs) Yes. I did want to mention, though, before I get into all of that, as a bonus fun fact, dragonflies are one of the most effective predators on earth catching up to 95 percent of the prey that they chase i might have known that briefly dragonflies were my favorite animal they're pretty amazing Mm -hmm. when i was a kid i heard the myth that dragonflies don't even have mouths and they're like butterflies or something and they Mm. just exist to mate but that is very far from the truth they're incredibly skilled hunters so I wasn't sure if you knew that. I thought you might leave the dragonfly off the list, not knowing that oh, it was no, a predator. Oh, no, I knew it. I knew it was a predator. Well done. <laughs> yeah, you nailed it other than missing the wolf. I just forgot about the wolf for yeah. some reason. I don't you, know what happened there. You got the idea. <laughs> so animal groups often switch between apex and mesopredator roles. Usually this happens when a new species is introduced or leaves an ecosystem. For example, presumably when allosauroids left their ecosystems, tyrannosauroids went from mesopredators to apex predators. Mm -hmm. So it sent me down this rabbit hole. Or erictodromius burrow. Yes. (laughs) Definitely not an apex predator, the erictodromius. Or a rabbit. You just said rabbit was level two. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) It's as low as it gets. Erictodromius might be a little higher, occasionally eating a bug or something. So there's a great paper titled The Rise of the Mesopredator by Laura Prue et al. That's a fun sounding paper. It is, but it's actually really depressing. So according to the paper, the apex predator hierarchy keeps ecosystems stable. And the authors say, quote, mesopredator outbreaks often lead to declining prey populations, sometimes destabilizing communities and driving local extinctions. (gasps) Oh, oh, oh. It's like the Lion King when the hyenas took over. It's exactly like that. That's <laughs> I didn't make that connection, but that is the perfect example. They couldn't control themselves. They overate. 
Yeah, and they had, remember, it wasn't just the hyena. They had all these other animals mm-hmm. that were like going nuts and eating everything they could possibly find. Mm-hmm. That is exactly what this is. Yeah, that's the perfect way to teach <laughs> mesopredation as a problem to kids. Because, Thanks, movies. Yeah, because <laughs> basically they, the way they put it is mesopredators aren't being kept in line, so they hunt like crazy. And then a lot of times it's multiple mesopredators at once, just like the hyena. And I don't remember what the other predators were. Were there other predators? Or the was lions. Just a, no, other mesopredators. Oh, uh, they only focused on the hyenas. I guess it was just different groups of hyenas and there were a ton of them. Mm-hmm. But in the actual savanna, you could have had like dingo and cheetah. And, oh, yeah. Different kinds of cats in addition to the lions. Yeah. And alligators, I guess. I don't know. Alligators might be apex predators because basically if nothing eats you, you're the apex predator of like your ecosystem. Like it could be the river ecosystem mm-hmm. kind of thing with the alligator. And then in that Lion King example, basically... The hyenas were becoming the new apex predator. So it sounds like it's unstable for a little while and then eventually you kind of get back into your groove and things stabilize. Yeah, it can if a new apex predator emerges. Yeah. So maybe that would eventually happen in the Lion King. But in the meantime, they could drive something to extinction, I suppose. So apex predators also reduce the population of mesopredators, sometimes by directly eating them but also by intimidating them away from prey. Again, that's like Mufasa mm. making the hyenas go somewhere else. And if the apex predator and mesopredator compete directly for the same prey, the mesopredator might just leave the ecosystem entirely. Oh, yeah. They can't get any food. Yeah. Or they're tired of the scraps. Yeah, or it's, it's not enough to live on the little bit of food they can get. And then a new species might enter as another mesopredator from like a nearby ecosystem, for example. Mm-hmm. So what makes the thing an apex predator is basically that nothing eats it. It eats all the things below it on the trophic level. And when humans are around, we often focus on getting rid of apex predators, which leaves room for new mesopredators. Mm-hmm. For example, in California, there used to be bears and wolves and mountain lions, but they were mostly displaced. So we're left with a, just a whole bunch of mesopredators. We've got raccoons, feral cats, coyotes, Sometimes they become apex predators, but usually in these suburban settings, they're not really becoming apex predators and dominating the ecosystem. No, but we also avoid them. Yeah. But in that context, the humans aren't really apex predators because we're not going out into our immediate ecosystem and hunting things. Oh, I see. So we're sort of removed from the direct ecosystem. We're observers. (laughs) It's hard to fit humans into these models in a lot of ways. All I know is I stay away from raccoons. Yeah. In some cases, people are, though, because like if you go out and hunt a bunch of deer, you're sort of taking the role of the wolf that used to hunt the deer. Mm-hmm. So we can, yeah, it's it's messy. Also, some people do interact with raccoons. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but that doesn't mean you're eating them. That's true. But if you scare them off, though, then you're sort of acting like an apex predator, too. I was thinking of a, a totally different not predator role at all, where the, is that video of that guy feeding hot dogs to raccoons? yes. So that's actually the other way that I was about to mention of messing up the apex versus mesopredator relationship. And that is by adding food to the ecosystem. So our leftover food and pet food allows for some mesopredators to thrive, either intentionally or unintentionally. Usually it's unintentionally. Mm -hmm. Usually people aren't feeding raccoons, but some people do. But if you do it accidentally, you're still giving them a big new resource. And that new resource allows them to have more babies Mm -hmm. and spread out more and just in general thrive more than some of the other mesopredators. And they can take over a little bit more. 
Interestingly, though, it's not just about getting rid of apex predators and directly feeding them. Another thing that can do it is growing crops, because if you grow a bunch of crops, it increases the amount of crop pests, and that can feed the mesopredators that feed on those pests. Hmm. So really anything that changes the ecosystem and that balance of food and predation can mess with what the apex predator is and what the mesopredator is and how successful the different groups are. So the conclusion of that Prue et al. paper is that in the last 200 years, North American humans have reduced all apex predator ranges, but increased about 60% of mesopredator ranges. Interesting. So humans don't like having apex predators around them because depending on who you ask, we're not an apex predator. We might get eaten by them. Or if not eaten, injured. Yeah, or they sometimes eat livestock. There's like a lot of reasons why humans are afraid of apex predators and want to get rid of them. Mm -hmm. And then when you get rid of the apex predator, what happens is the mesopredators rise and then thus the title of the paper. However, fortunately, recently there's been some reintroduction of wolves and some of the other apex predators back into the ecosystem and it's helping to balance things out a little bit better. Mm -hmm. So both of those mechanisms, meaning the getting rid of the apex predator or changing the food supply for the mesopredator are potential mechanisms for the allosauroid to tyrannosauroid apex predator switch, which happened in the late Cretaceous. For example, if the allosauroids were killed off due to disease, loss of a food source, changing environment, or really any other factor, it would have left that room available for a mesopredator to step up, in this case, tyrannosauroids. Yeah. Oh, no. And then ultimately they didn't last as long, just like the hyenas in Lion King. <laughs> yeah. Although it, it was less their fault. Yeah. <laughs> the tyrannosauroids, that is. Yeah, that's true. And since there weren't any big herbivores that survived the mass extinction, it's not like the allosauroids would have made it if it wasn't for those tyrannosauroids wipe, wiping them out first mm -hmm. or whatever wiped them out first. But then they left a gap and a new apex predator rose up. Yes, that is true. Rise of the mammals. So that that is one option. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's definitely what happened with mammals. Mm -hmm. But as far as allosauroids and tyrannosauroids are concerned, another possibility is a food supply change. For example, roughly 80 to 90 million years ago, hadrosaurid and ceratopsid populations started increasing pretty significantly. Mm -hmm. And say if allosauroids specialized on feeding on sauropods and tyrannosauroids specialized on hadrosaurids and or ceratopsids, all of a sudden tyrannosauroids have way more food to exploit, like mm -hmm. the raccoons that are getting fed and finding trash all over the place to eat then those tyrannosauroids can use that food to grow their population and maybe even their own body size over evolutionary timescales and eventually drive the allosauroids to extinction. Oh, yeah. So we don't really know which happened yet. It would be really interesting if we could find a fossil of an ecosystem where you have an allosauroid and a tyrannosauroid that are close in size. Mm -hmm. That might make you lean more towards this option where it's like the tyrannosauroids are bulking up rather than the allosauroids disappeared for some other reason. Yeah. But yeah, we still don't know. It would be really hard to figure out if the allosauroids were killed off from any of those other, the disease, the loss of food source, changing environment. Yeah, it's, you need the perfect moment in time or the perfect few years in order to figure any of this out. Mm -hmm. And then you have to assume that that one thing you found is what was happening everywhere too. Yeah. And it wasn't just a one-off because that's always a possibility as well. There's also a third possibility I ran into, 
while trying to figure out whether or not humans are apex predators. And it's in the paper, The Evolution of the Human Trophic Level During the Pleistocene Hmm. by Mickey Bendor and others. And it was published in the American Journal of Physical Anthropology this year. Basically, they argue that hominids in the Pleistocene were following around mega herbivores and eating them for most of their calories. They estimate that Homo erectus and early Homo sapiens were hypercarnivores, getting more than 70% of their diet from animals. That's the definition of a hypercarnivore. Mm-hmm. And this would have put them in a very high trophic level, possibly being an apex predator, because you don't necessarily have to eat other predators to become an apex predator, because there are some animals, say like T-Rex, if all it ever ate was Triceratops, mm-hmm. it's still only at number two on the trophic level because it's just eating a plant eater. Right. So it's not like it ate this thing that ate that thing that ate that thing that ate that thing. But it is at the top because nothing's eating it, mm-hmm. and it eats as many Triceratops as it wants, and nothing messes with it. So... You can be an apex predator just by specializing on a mega herbivore. That's one way to do it, as long as you're not getting eaten all the time by something else. There's also evidence of hominids eating massive lions, larger than even the largest lions today, Hmm. and other large predators, but it's still debated how frequent that was, whether it was like some sort of niche partitioning of different hominid groups. Yeah. Because, you know, there were so many hominids trying to survive and they didn't want to all be eating the same food. Maybe some of them specialized on eating lions. It's possible. Or it's possible that different seasons, people were eating different things. We mm-hmm. don't really know. It's We're still working or, from a fragmentary. Maybe it was a, like a defense thing and then they didn't want the food to go to waste. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely possible. We don't really know. Or a ritual thing or who mm-hmm. knows what. But we do know they were eating them because it's you can pretty easily tell when humans are eating an animal because there are these stone tool marks in the bone where they're cutting off meat and a lot of times cooking marks and things like that. It's pretty obvious compared to when you're working with dinosaur bones. And to that end, they've found stone tools for hunting that are over a million years old from hominids. But the most recent stone tools for processing plants are like 50,000 years old or something. Oh, So there's a lot of lines of evidence. There's a whole bunch of other stuff I'm not going to go into because we're not an anthropology podcast. But a lot of things point to hominids being probably hyper carnivores until we drove most of our food to extinction. So we were almost like those meso predators. It's like 50, it's like 60 million years delayed. (laughs) Like the mammals, (laughs) the rise of the mammals as like the new apex predator and then eventually driving stuff to extinction and then mix them up. But the current leading hypothesis is that after running out of easy meat, we started eating more plants, and eventually that led to agriculture. And then that's when we really stepped it up. In terms of... Humans taking over the world. Yes, that is true. But I would argue that this does in fact mean that hominids are basically apex predators, but it's inconvenient. (laughs) So we don't do it anymore. <laughs> We're past it. <laughs> yeah, we've we've moved beyond the trophic level diagram to a higher plane of right. existence. We leveled up all the way. We're we're beyond that trophic level yeah. stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I am biased being a hominid. Well, as are we all. <laughs> <laughs> so, wrapping this up with some dinosaurs, allosauroids unfortunately couldn't switch to agriculture if they ate all their prey which means that this third really unlikely possibility that I came up with after reading about this anthropology is that allosauroids may have eaten all of their prey 
and driven themselves to starvation and then gone extinct, leaving room for the tyrannosaurs. But it's definitely the least likely. Almost always when predators eat too much prey, the predator population suffers because they start starving and then the prey populations recover and then it sort of repeats ad nauseum. Mm -hmm. But we know that doesn't always happen because humans, for one, drove our prey to extinction by being too successful. Yeah. And on, and on that kind of sad note, that wraps up this episode of Ino Dino. Thanks for listening. Visit our website, inodino.com. We've got a new dinosaur quiz. You can test how true of a dino nerd you are. Questions are all about Bone Wars dinosaurs. And thanks for listening. Until next time. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.